welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. So last week, we talked about fake artificial intelligence, and this week I wanted to do something slightly different and talk about actual, real artificial intelligence. Not the Mechanical Turk, but things that really can actually beat humans at games. And to that end, I've called up uh, the guy I quoted last episode, Joseph Barker. Excuse me, Dr. Joseph Barker. (laughs) You're a newly minted PhD from UCLA. Congratulations. Thank you. I've been a doctor for exactly two weeks now. I bet you've been a doctor. Actually, to the half hour. Really? Yeah. So, good timing. Wonderful. I hope you have been celebrating your doctorness with, I don't know, songs, wine, laurel leaves. I have mostly been sleeping a lot. Okay. It's been really nice. You don't get to do too much of that in grad school, so. Very cool. It's been working out all right. Um, but yeah, I want to talk to you because you have studied uh, games and how machines solve and play games for some time now. Uh, could you yeah. maybe describe your um, background with that? Sure. So I got a PhD in AI and the, um, the specific subfield that I consider is something that's called heuristic search. And it's a fairly broad field. Um, the basic idea is that we have these things that are called graphs in um, computer science. And a graph, if you're not familiar, is just sort of like a large network or a web or something like that. And what it turns out you can do is you can take a large number of real-world problems and you can represent them in these very large abstract graphs and then find properties of these graphs that somehow um, that solve the problem that you're interested in. So a real concrete example of this is um, vehicle navigation. Mm-hmm. So if you want to, you know, use Google Maps or your GPS or something to find the quickest route from here to home or to wherever you want to go, you would, um, your GPS under the covers is going to take the map of the city that you're in and represent it as this large graph, this large abstract graph, and then find a path between these two points. And it turns out you can solve a lot of other um, not so sort of real world problems in the same way. So um, a popular one is puzzle games. So, for example, the Rubik's Cube puzzle, which I'm sure you're familiar with. This is yeah. you know, very popular. You, um, in the emails that we had before uh, recording this, you really surprised me with that information on the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> well, yeah. So the Rubik's Cube is this, um, this popular puzzle uh, invented by Erno Rubik in the, in the 70s. And it's this very simple puzzle game that I'm sure you're familiar with where you've got sort of nine cubes and you, by rotating faces of the cube, want to arrange it so that it's in um in some sort of goal configuration where all colors on the same on the face are the same color and it turns out that solving rubik's cube so if you want to figure out what's the smallest number of moves it takes to solve an arbitrary like randomly scrambled rubik's cube puzzle Mm -hmm. the algorithms that you would use to solve that are essentially the same as the algorithms that you'd use to find the shortest path between two points on a map because you're really doing the same kind of thing you're finding the shortest point path where path is just you know set of moves you could take to solve the Rubik's Cube. Very cool. Yeah. And and uh, you mentioned that there was something that's called a God's Number of Rubik's Cube, <laughs> which is a totally awesome name, a God's Number. It sounds all mighty and divine and everything. What is that? Yeah, so God's Number, I think this, um, I think this uh, happens outside the context of just the Rubik's Cube, but um, the Rubik's Cube is where it's most famous. The idea of God's Number is 
you know, for a particular Rubik's Cube puzzle, it's going to take you some number of moves to solve it in the best case. Mm -hmm. So you need to solve, you know, take at least a certain number of moves to solve a random scrambled Rubik's Cube. And God's number says, well, what's the worst case? So if you look at every possible scrambled Rubik's Cube um, and solve it in the smallest number of moves possible, what is the largest, smallest number, if that makes any sense? That makes sense, yeah. Okay. And so that's what's called God's number. And it turns out the God number for the Rubik's Cube is 20, which means that for any arbitrarily randomly scrambled Rubik's Cube, it takes at most 20 moves to solve it, which is actually really surprising, right? Yeah, I mean, if you ever... that seems like a tiny amount of moves. Yeah, no, I mean, I can solve a Rubik's Cube, but I like it takes me hundreds of moves to solve it, right? And mm-hmm. it turns out if you're very, very smart and you think for weeks at a time, you can solve it in 20, which is kind of incredible. We do have like a computer that could think fast enough to do all that stuff to solve a Rubik's Cube in just 20 moves. Sure. Yeah, I actually have a, uh, a code on my computer, the laptop I'm talking to you right now, that um, solves Rubik's Cube puzzles. Solving one that takes 20 moves would take, I don't know, I mean, probably days to solve a prob- problem that, of that size, okay. but you could do it, sure, just on a commodity laptop machine. Okay. Very cool. Um, one of the things I also wanted to um, get across to folks is that when you're playing games, there is an optimal way to play them. And there are certain mm-hmm. games that are completely deterministic, and mm-hmm. we know how they end. And I think the best, and we know like how they end, what's going to happen, basically everything about them. And I think maybe the best example of that is tic tac toe. Mm-hmm. So can you go into that a bit? Sure. So I think you're talking about like optimal strategy for two player games. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So what I what I mentioned, you know, previously, Rubik's Cube and puzzles like that, those are what are called single-player games, right? Where you are just trying to solve the puzzle. And there's a lot of games um, that are called two-player or they're more than two-player games occasionally. And the question that you're interested in in games like that is like, well, what's the optimal strategy for solve, for playing these games? So if you and I play and I want to guarantee the best possible outcome, um, what am I going to do? And so if you played, you know, tic-tac-toe when you were a kid... Um, you know, when you were young, if you played it enough times, I'm sure that you realize at some point that the game gets kind of futile, right? Mm-hmm. A very small game. And if, you know, um, if I play the right way, no matter what you do, you can't beat me, right? Um, and if we both play sort of as well as possible, it turns out that every t- game of tic-tac-toe you ever play is a tie. And so what that means is that um, if you play optimally in a game of tic-tac-toe, um, if both players play optimally in a game of tic-tac-toe, then the result of tic-tac-toe is just a tie game, right? It's kind of, you, you can't win if the other person plays. The best you can do is tying. And so in two-player games, the question is, um, what is, this is called the minimax value of the game for reasons we can get into if you like, but what is the minimax value of the game? Which is to say, if both players play optimally, what's the result? Mm-hmm. So tic-tac-toe is, um, is one that you probably, everybody figured out is a, is a tie game. Um, and it turns out that much, much larger games are then solved. So um, maybe you were going to go into this yourself, but Checkers, for example, is, a, is, a, is I think, the largest game that's been solved in, um, largest two-player game that's been solved. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, just like Tic-Tac-Toe, Checkers is actually a tie as well. So if you play against somebody who's perfectly good, the best you can absolutely do against that player is to tie them. You can't win. Okay. And this was approved in, I think, 2007 or something like that. So the next time somebody wants to play checkers with me, I should just look at them and say, it's a tie, and then we should shrug our shoulders and then walk away. 
Yep, that's exactly how this research works. Once right. you know the result, the game's no longer fun. There are yes, there is no there is no amusement value anymore in checkers. We've ruined it for you. Stop playing it. Yep, ever since Deep Blue pit beat Kasparov, nobody plays chess anymore. Exactly, exactly. And soon there will be Skynet and Apocalypse and everything. I can't wait. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, you mentioned the uh, minimax value and mm -hmm. uh, that you could go into that. Please do go into that. <laughs> my, it would be my pleasure. So, so minimax is this is this concept, and minimax is short for, um, I believe it's minimize the maximum expected value, or would it be sorry, maximize the minimum expected value. Mm -hmm. And the the goal, the point of this is when you're playing a game with somebody, you could do a lot of different things, right? The one thing you could do, so if you're playing, um, if you were playing uh, poker, for example. You might want to like get as much money as possible, right? An alternative thing you might want to do is lose as little money as possible in the worst case, right? And those are not exactly the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the idea of minimax is you want to maximize what happens in the worst case. So prove that you will do at least as good as this. So in other words, in the game of tic-tac-toe, the minimax value is a tie. That means that I might be able to win in I mean, in and tic-tac-toe, but I definitely will not do any worse than drawing if I play optimally. Mm -hmm. And so that's minimax. And they, um, there's an important theorem called the minimax theorem, which was introduced by uh, John von Neumann, who is this very important guy in computer science, um, I believe in 1928. And he showed that, um, that basically that every two-player zero-sum game has a minimax value, mm -hmm. which is not actually necessarily obvious, right? What this is saying is that if you play any, any two-player game that um, that's, has no randomness, that there exists an optimal strategy for both players, right? I can, I can tell you in advance what my strategy is, and you can tell me in advance what my strategy is, and I'm not going to change, right? You still can't do any better. Mm -hmm. And this isn't necessarily obvious, right? Because you might have a strategy and it might turn out that my best strategy in response to that is something, but then it turns out your best strategy in response to that is something else and you sort of have this iterative thing. But it turns out that's not actually the case in any two-player zero-sum game. It turns out that there is an optimal strategy that you can know in advance and you can share it. It doesn't have to be hidden information. And if, you, if both players use this optimal strategy, then the result of the game is the minimax value of that game. Sort of, and that's what, you, what we talk about when we talk about solving a game, finding the minimax value of the game. Mm -hmm. In other words, the expected result of both players play optimally. Yeah, uh, my familiarity with John, uh, John von Neumann is a bit different from yours, probably, because I encountered him in uh, game theory classes for political science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he was like extraordinary. Him and John Nash were both extraordinarily... Uh, influential in that theory uh also in economics and i'm sorry this is getting really like name droppy right now <laughs> and like a general audience is going to go like what <laughs> why aren't you talking about people getting kidnapped in the desert by bandits i thought this was a history podcast but you're right i mean so, the, so john von Neumann actually was very influential in the founding of game theory which mm -hmm. is at least related to what we're talking about and um what i just told you the minimax theorem is actually i believe a special case of um, Nash's um, theory, Nash's equilibrium. So there actually is a very close relationship there. Okay. Uh, could you explain maybe what a Nash equilibrium is for folks? <laughs> so Nash equilibrium, um, this is, this I is mean, more sort of... They might have seen the documentary, A Beautiful Mind, but for those who haven't... Yeah, that, that, they actually talk about Nash equilibrium in that movie, and they get it totally wrong. They, get, they talk about it very badly. Yeah, I mean, I get that it's a kind of complicated idea, but they... But they that, no, it was wrong. Um, the idea <laughs> that of Nash equilibrium very is very, angry, by the uh, way. 
I'm sure. They didn't even mention the Emperor, Emperor of Antarctica. I know, he declares um, himself Emperor of so, Antarctica. That's the best part of the whole story. I know, it's the best thing about him. Um, but no, so the idea of Nash Equilibria is very simple. So Nash Equilibria deals with more general games than this. So we were just talking about two-player games. But um, in game theory, this sort of study, we can have larger games than this, right? We can have games with multiple players. We can have games not necessarily zero-sum Maybe both players are better off if they cooperate, right? Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of a Nash equilibrium is if you have these um, abstractly defined games where players have choices and depending on the choices that different players make, you get a payoff. A Nash equilibrium basically says for any such game, it turns out that um, you can define an optimal strategy for every player such that even if they know what the other player's strategies are, they won't want to change their own strategy. In other words, there exists some strategy for every player such that if every player picks that strategy, it, nobody will be better off by changing their strategy, which is, I think you can see the analogy between this to the two-player games. It's a very similar concept. Right, right. Um, I'm simplifying a little bit, but that's the basic idea. No, it's, it's good. I can definitely see that in, I'm keeping tic-tac-toe in mind when we're talking mm -hmm. about this, and I can definitely see that in tic-tac-toe if I was playing with, with a, child or something which is the only scenario in which i'd probably play tic-tac-toe because it's a so you might think about um uh rock scissors paper for example mm -hmm. so in rock scissors paper i can tell you ahead of time my strategy is i'm going to flip a three-sided coin or roll a three-sided dice or however you generate numbers randomly from one to three mm -hmm. and i'm just going to say based on that i'm going to do rock scissors paper right right and no matter what you do you're never going to beat me on average right like, I told you my strategy in advance, you can't beat me, and I have no incentive to change. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the, yeah, the basic idea. And if both players do that, you're not going to beat the other player. Okay. That's one example of an Ash Equilibrium. Okay. I, I want to I bring this back a little and focus it more so it doesn't spiral us into, into <laughs> us talking about, like, you know, movies and rock, paper, scissors and all that kind of stuff. Um, so let's talk back to history. No, no, it's okay. It's fascinating. I'm going to have to seriously edit this for the radio version. It's fine. <laughs> sure. Um. Let's talk about chess. Okay. How long have we, in the last episode, we talked about a fake chess playing machine, the Mechanical Turk, which was just a, an illusion. Um, mm -hmm. How long have humans been trying to make machines that actually for real can play chess? It's a good question. So I, um, the first uh, piece of literature that I'm aware of that deals with solving chess is a paper by... Um, Claude Shannon, mm -hmm. and I told you in my paper what the, what the date of that paper is. I think it was like 1930 or something like that. Um, 1950, sorry. So Claude Shannon, who is sort of famous as the founder of information theory, also turns out was a very good soccer player, but that's kind of tangential, um, had this 1950 paper on um, how to solve chess, and it was the first one that sort of proposed a strategy for it. And it also came up with the first estimate of how many... Um, possible legal chess boards, chess games there are, or how many legal chess configurations are, which is this obscenely large number. It's like 10 to the 45 or something like that. Right. And so this is a 1950 paper by Claude Shannon is the earliest um, reference that I'm aware of. And that actually predates even the term artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's right. So, um, right. So John McCarthy, um, sort of widely regarded as the father of artificial intelligence. Um, I think he coined the term artificial artificial intelligence in 1955. So yeah, Claude Shannon's paper predates that by about five years. 
Um, I don't believe he actually implemented a chess playing machine, but I think he um, came up with how you would do this. And he came up with a fairly primitive theory, primitive ver um, solver or an algorithm to do it, but one that in theory would at least work. Mm -hmm. Maybe not in a practical amount of time though. So I think a lot of people are familiar with, um, you know, Gary Kasparov getting, getting beaten by Deep Blue in 1997. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been improvements in uh, you know, chess playing computers since then. But you said it's not so much hardware improvements as software improvements or algorithm improvements. Yeah, that's that's definitely right. Um, so, I mean, computers obviously have gotten significantly faster in the last 65 years since Claude Shannon published that paper. And so, you know, we, the fact that computers are much more powerful helps. But I think there's this conception that, um, you know, Deep Blue, I think, was a massively parallel machine that was um, specifically designed to do chess playing stuff. It was a really, really powerful machine at the time. But so as far as I know, modern computer, like modern chess playing computers are basically done on um, basically commodity hardware, hardware like a laptop. And it's really about the algorithms. And the reason for this is fairly simple, right? So I, I mentioned this to you in the email before, but chess, for example, has, you know, it's not really known, but somewhere on the order of 10 to the 45 um, possible legal chess boards, which is obscenely large. Mm -hmm. The number I gave you was that if you did 10 million boards, you know, if you generated 10 million boards per second, it would take you like longer than a lifetime of our son to generate every single legal chess board. It's obscenely large. Right. So, so kind of no matter how fast your computer is, like you can make your computer 10 times faster. That's not really going to make a difference, right? What you really need to do and what these, what these algorithms do is they, they're much smarter about saying, well, these parts of the search space, I don't need to consider anymore, right? Because I can prove that I can do better than this, than this part of the search space without looking at it. Is this so the easy uh, alpha beta pruning you were mentioning? Right, exactly. That's where I was leading to. So, right. So the idea is fairly simple, which is, you know, look at, if, assume that the algorithm is looking at a part of the board, right? Like a particular board and trying to figure out what's my best move for this board. Well, you know, I could make one move and maybe it turns out that by doing a little bit of search and thinking, I realize that if I make that move, I can checkmate my opponent. Mm -hmm. Well, as a result, that means I shouldn't look at any other possible move on this board because I can't do any better than checking my opponent, right? Mm -hmm. Who cares? And so this idea was built up um, in the 1960s, I believe. Or, um, and it's kind of a vague, it's a sort of vague concept. There's no real obvious person who founded it. It's usually attributed to John McCarthy, I believe. Um, but this idea is called alpha-beta pruning. And this is a, a very influential algorithm. So um, this is used in a huge number of game-solving domains, alpha-beta search. And the basic idea here is we don't want to look at every possible game that we could play because it's just going to be way too many. So alpha-beta pruning gives you techniques where you can say these parts of the search space, these, these particular moves are provably suboptimal, and so I should just shouldn't consider them and limit my search to parts of the search space that are actually useful. I might actually be productive. You know, for recent context, the checkers, right? Yeah, so I mean, just for, for current reference, um, I mentioned that in 2007, the game of checkers was proved to be draw. I believe that at least in part, um, the algorithm that they used to solve it, which is this program called Chinook, also used alpha-beta pruning. So, um, you know, this idea was invented in the 60s, but it's still perfectly relevant today. I used it in an algorithm that I used in um, a game solver in one of my papers, for example. So, All right. Excellent. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you surprised me with when we were emailing about this is you talked about um, artificial intelligence and poker. 
Oh, yeah. Which, you know, I wouldn't think of because I think of poker as being very much a game where you are, you know, very intuitive and reading people's faces and looking for folks' tells and seeing mm-hmm. if, like, sweat is coming down the forehead of your opponent. Um, but you said that apparently computers have gotten pretty good at poker. So, yeah, so let me add some caveats. I'm not as familiar with poker as other games. So the distinction between poker and chess is obviously that poker involves a level of randomness that chess doesn't, right? right. So you don't know what the cards are going to be. You don't, um, right? Mm-hmm. So there's hidden information is what you would say. And so you're right. As a result, um, chess or poker rather involves a lot more of a, of a psychological element. Um, but it turns out that... Um, that computers actually can do reasonably well at poker. So Texas Hold'em would be the most commonly studied one, and, tech, and poker just in general is the field that we, we think about most often in computers when we think about um, games with hidden information, where you know, chess would be the one you'd think about with complete information. Mm-hmm. And I'm not actually sure what the, the results are for general two-player poker. I know that it's not solved or not two-player poker, Texas Hold'em poker, rather. I know that that's not solved yet. I don't know how good computers are at it. But there was a um, very recent um, paper in 2015, actually, um, just a few months ago at a conference I happened to be at, um, where they showed that a limited version of poker is now solved. So this is two-player Texas Hold'em with, um, with bid limits. So you can mm-hmm. bid, you know, there's a maximum bid, right? And so this, was public, you know, this paper was published in 2015 in Science, I believe. And what they showed is that um, despite the fact that there's randomness and hidden information, um, you can actually solve poker as well. And because poker is a very is an entirely symmetric game, right? So one sometimes some games I'm the dealer, some games you're the dealer, and you just keep on playing ad infinitum. The best you can possibly do if both players play optimally is tie, hmm. right? Because both players can play the same strategy. So it turns out that the like the the optimal strategy, if players play with an optimal strategy, the game is a tie, which is what you'd expect because the game is entirely symmetric. But now we actually know what the optimal strategy is, and it took quite some time to solve it. I don't know how long it is. And it's a little bit confusing, because in, in chess and checkers and so forth, there's no determinism. There's, sorry, there's no randomness. So you know in advance what the optimal strategy is, um, and you know exactly what the outcome will be. But in mm-hmm. poker, there's, this concept, there's randomness, right? You know, it's very unlikely, but it might just be that every single game you get a royal flush and I get nothing. And no matter how good of a player I am, I just lose, right? Right. So there's the concept of solving a game in poker is a little bit different. And they came up with this crazy concept called essentially weakly solved, which is basically boils down to if you play, you know, X number of games of poker a minute for eight hours a day for every day for 70 years, you will... Likely tie with some very high probability, okay. which is this kind of crazy bonkers definition, but um, that's what they solved. So this is a very recent result, 2015. So like tic tac toe and checkers, poker is now no longer fun, <laughs> and everybody should just stop playing it because we're done. We're done with poker as a civilization, right? Well, we haven't solved chess yet, so we're still good there. Okay, and, and we haven't solved involved more than two-player poker so you still got a couple of years of fun left but yeah i would start uh i would start thinking of other hobbies okay uh i do have actually one question that i wanted to ask you to kind of uh wrap things up has studying this field um when you're sitting down with people to play like you know settlers of Catan or risk <laughs> or 
other hypothetical games that people might play, you know, for board game night, uh, has this changed how you behave at the game board, you know, with friends or whatnot? That's a good question. Um, I will tell you, I don't know that it's affected me that much. I probably think a little bit more analytically about what I'm doing, like in terms of expected payoffs and stuff like that. Although realistically, I'm not great at board games and I don't think that's going to change. Mm-hmm. It will tell you though, that I had a, um, I had a 2012 paper where I solved the game of Dots and Boxes, which is this very popular game where you have grids of dots and you draw lines between them and you try and draw the largest number of boxes between these lines in, in this grid of dots. This is you know, a popular game when you're you know, in middle school or something. Um, I wrote a solver for that. And as a result, I am very good at Dots and Boxes. So if you ever <laughs> want to play a game of Dots and Boxes, I will kick your ass. However... <laughs> More generally than that, I'm not sure that it's really uh, really had any real-world impact. Okay. My advisor, um, this is a personal anecdote, my advisor um, wrote a 1997 paper. He was the first person, this is Rich Korf, he was the first person to solve um, instant, randomly scrambled instances of the Rubik's Cube solving a puzzle, um, using a computer, and he still can't solve a Rubik's Cube. So <laughs> uh, I don't think that these are necessarily transferable skills. I mean, couldn't he just say that, like, oh, I, I have a computer that can now just do that for me. I have, you know, mechanized the solving of Rubik's Cubes. Like, doesn't that kind of, like, er-solving it? Yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd like to think so. Okay. Excellent. All right. Is there anything that I have not asked you that you feel like is very important to speak to? Um, and I know that this is your field, and we are condensing it down to a tiny, tiny podcast that's going to be about <laughs> probably maximum 30 minutes. But is there any, anything else that you wanted to add? Well, there's this funny little anecdote that I kind of liked about, um, I mentioned this to you in my email, but this was about the sliding tile puzzle. Oh, yeah. This, this, is, um, this is this popular game where you have um, some, you know, usually 15 numbers, you know, 1 through 15 uh, arranged in a little grid. Mm-hmm. And you can make little moves by sliding a tile into an empty blank spot next to it. And then you, the goal is to rearrange the numbers so that they're in ascending order. Um, sometimes it's, you know, with a picture or something like that. And so this was invented in 1870s by this guy, um, Lloyd, Sam Lloyd. And it was just a simple puzzle game. And I love this little thing that he did, which is he invented this puzzle game and he wanted to sell a lot of it. And so to create buzz for it, he published this picture of a scrambled game of the sliding tile puzzle, the 15 puzzle, and said, anybody who solves this puzzle gives me the moves to solve this puzzle will win $1,000, which was a huge chunk of money in the 1870s. And this was huge, and it was in newspapers, and it was a big thing. Until a couple of years later, somebody pointed out in an academic paper that this, this puzzle was actually entirely unsolvable. <laughs> so if you, scramble the, if, you scramble the, uh, if you scramble the numbers just entirely randomly, only half of those randomly scrambled states are solvable, and the other half aren't. And they just cleverly picked one that wasn't and profited thereby. So That's brilliant. <laughs> I always kind of like that story. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking with me today. Been my pleasure. All right. Uh, there are related links for all our episodes at interestingtimespodcast.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, on Tumblr as well. Um, we're also on Patreon. We are an ad-free podcast and entirely supported by our Patreon supporters. So go to interestingtimespodcast.com and click on Support IT on Patreon to become a supporter. We're also on X-Ray FM on Thursdays at 9 o'clock and 9.30, and then uh, at 11 o'clock and 11.30. 91.1, 
and 107.1 in the Portland, Oregon area. And I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.